Hiya, welcome along to a brand new episode of the High Performance Podcast. Can I just start by saying thank you so much for all the amazing feedback to the conversation we had last week with Mel Robbins, the inspirational uh, female speaker from the United States who came on here, talked about high-fiving yourself every single day. And I will be totally honest, myself and Damien were concerned that Oh, mainly because this is listened to by a lot of Brits, this podcast, <laughs> and we're a cynical bunch. We thought people would be like, what? High five yourself? What is that? But the reaction has been unreal. Um, and we now have Mel as a listener as well. So Mel, over there in America, from all of us on High Performance, thank you so much for coming on, for sharing, for talking about your high five habit. And um, the impact has been unbelievable. The number of downloads was stunning. This week, someone totally different. And this is what I love about this podcast. Here's what you can expect on today's High Performance Podcast. I got knocked out in the most horrendous fashion. Uh, the guy hit me with an overhand right. I went down, I was already unconscious, and the guy leapt through the air. And there's, He's like airborne and he lands with his forearm on me. And everyone said, he's done. He's done. He will never, ever come back from a knockout like that. If you're in an angry, frantic state of mind, you're never the best version of yourself, regardless of what it is. Whatever you're doing in life, if you're mad, if you're angry, you're not being the best version of yourself. Simple as that. And this guy said to me, he said that I worked with my supervisor. He says, he says Michael, he said, what do you want to do for the rest of your life? Is this what you want to do? And I said, no. He said, well, you need to give it some thought because you know, before you know it, 40 years will have passed just like it did for me. It's never easy. And if you're chasing your dreams and you're chasing your goals, be prepared that uh, there's going to be dark days. There's going to be tough times, but it's going to make it all worth it in the long run. So there you go. Last week, someone talking about high five in the mirror. This week, a man who was employed to knock people out for a living. That's how we roll on this podcast. Uh, it's a really interesting conversation. So stay where you are. Just a quick reminder, if you want, we have a book out. It's called High Performance, Lessons from the Best on Becoming Your Best. You can pre-order it right now. It would make a good Christmas present for anyone you think that perhaps needs a little uplift for 2022. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram as well. I'm at Jake Comfrey. Professor Hughes is at Liquid Thinker and the podcast is at High Performance. And as well, as that you can watch the interviews as well as listen to them head to youtube type in high performance podcast and subscribe to us right there right let's get on with it today's episode is an awesome one i can't wait for you to hear it uh and it comes next i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Before we go any further, though, uh, a quick shout out to our founding partner, Lotus Cars. You know by now, without Lotus Cars, there is no high performance podcast. So thank you so much to Lotus for being there right at the very beginning. The big news from them is that they are pushing hard towards an all-electric future. They've got a £100 million plus investment in the UK alone, building two new factories. They've got plans for production of vehicles in China as well. There's no doubt about it. Lotus is the healthiest it has ever been. And I think there's a big point here about delayed gratification. It's now almost 2022. The current plan that they're now working to was formed in 2017. They've gone through a global pandemic. It's taken loads and loads of time to get to this point, but they're a small company and it just takes time to rebuild. So 
If you're at a process of rebuild, whether you're a person or a business, just remember it takes time, even for the greatest of car manufacturers. So be patient. And Lotus, thank you very much for being part of the High Performance Podcast. So quitters never win. A bold statement and one you can only really share with confidence if you're a winner who never quit. And today's guest earned the right to name his autobiography exactly that. A former UFC fighter who just kept fighting, even at times when he could hardly see and his health was letting him down. However, in his words, giving up never occurred to me. So how do you get yourself into a mindset where giving up is just not for you, where you're so focused on the goal, whatever that goal is, that that is all you see. It's a real pleasure for Damien and myself to be in conversation with a fighter, an actor, a podcaster, a father, a man who has quite a story to tell. Welcome to High Performance, Michael Bisping. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. And that is quite the intro. So thank you, Jake and, uh, and Damien. Great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. We always start the same way, Michael. What in your mind is high performance? I mean, I guess it, it, it varies from, uh, you know, it depends what profession or line of work or whatever you you're in, I guess. But what is high performance? You know, just giving your best in everything you do, I guess. I don't know. Next question. That's a tricky one. So what was it for you in your career then? If someone had come to you and said, right, how do you compete at the top? What was the answer? Yeah, I mean, to, to compete at the top, I mean, obviously, regardless of what you're in, you're always going to start at the bottom. You know what I mean? And everyone, like, like, like when I started getting into MMA, um, that was back in 2002. And back then it wasn't a sport that people knew, that people recognized. Um, and I remember at the time, because I left school at 16, you know, n- n- nothing unusual there, but I was an idiot. You know, I didn't have the foresight to think college was important and things like that. So when I got involved with it, it was a career choice, you know. But at that time, everyone was like, if you're getting into mixed martial arts for money, you know, th- there is no money to do that. And I was like, wow, uh, that is the only reason I'm trying to do this. You know, but obviously you got to start at the bottom. You got to have the goal. You got to have that, that, that vision, you know, that, that I can make a change. But still, you know, I mean, having high performance, I mean, but my word, what is high performance was the question. And I'm rambling here and I still don't have an answer for you. <laughs> I'm amazed though, with the life you've lived that you, that you don't, that you don't sort of have a place that you went to when you were competing at the very top, mentally, physically, a place that no, very few people can get to. Oh, no, no, no. I, I certainly had a uh, very, very tough mental resolve over the years. I had to, you know, with, with all the ups and downs that I had. I mean, I just never stopped believing myself, believing in myself, pardon me. Um, you know, because obviously when I got involved with mixed martial arts and then uh, I got to the UFC and I was doing well, um, everybody wants to be the champion of the world. You know, and I got to number one contender matchup several times and I lost those fights, but I never gave up hope. But there was a few times I got knocked out. And I remember there was one UFC 100 it was, and it was the biggest pay-per-view of all time at that time. And I got knocked out in the most horrendous fashion. Uh, the guy hit me with an overhand right. I went down, I was already unconscious and the guy leapt through the air. And there's, there's images of it. If you Google UFC 100 and my name, he's like airborne and he lands with his forearm on me. And everyone said, he's done. He's done. He will never, ever come back from a knockout like that. And history has shown us time and time again, when a fighter gets knocked out like that, they can't come back. And I remember actually that my next fight was at the MEN and uh, I, I wasn't the main event because I'd just been knocked out. I was a little further down the card. And all the journalists, they were always kind of trying to bother me for, for my time and things like that. And I remember I was in the locker room, just getting wrapped up. 
And this journalist that used to always speak to me walked in and I turned around, I thought he was going to chat to me and he just went right past me. Didn't even give me the time of day. And that really pissed me off. But that anger, that, that, that feeling disrespected, that drove me, you know, because I wanted to prove everybody wrong. Everyone thought I was finished. And as I said, that wasn't the only time. There was three or four times throughout my career I got to the, the number one contender matchups. And that's, that, that's a great position to get to. You know, I, I got myself to fight, you know, a title eliminator, but I did that several times, but I st- and every time I, f- I failed, I failed at those hurdles, you know, and everyone said, ah, it's never going to happen, but I never gave up. I always believed in myself. I always knew if I made tweaks and I adjusted this and I adjusted that and I did this a little different in training camp and maybe my nutrition was better or maybe I ran some extra miles in the morning or I got better at jujitsu, whatever it was, there was always something that I clung to and I never gave up hope. And then along the way, as you mentioned, you know, there was a lot of injuries and this is actually a fake eye. I lost my vision. Uh, And still then I never gave up hope. And I look back and I think, uh, I, I'm shocked when I could stumble across because I don't sit around watching my own tapes. But if I stumble across an old fighter man on TV, sometimes like it happened one night a couple of months ago, and afterwards I'm on the microphone, I'm like, I will be the champion of the world. I sat there, I said to my wife, I'm like, geez, Louise. I said, look at this guy, because that guy doesn't exist to me anymore. I'm I'm 42 years old. I'm retired. My fight. I'm not a fighter anymore. But I couldn't believe when I watched it back. Seeing where did that confidence come from? You know, because I the reality is I was fighting with one eye but I still never gave up hope. And I, I don't know what it is because I'm not a particularly philosophical guy, but I never gave up on myself. Do you have a way of explaining then to our listeners and our audience how you created that self-belief? Or was it something that you've, you had from a young age? Because we get messages, Michael, every single day from people saying, look, I, I've got all these great things in my life. The one thing I lack is belief in myself. It's a powerful thing to be able to share how you build it, how you retain it. Mm, yeah, no, it is. And it's, it is a powerful thing to build and it's a difficult thing to explain, I guess, of where that comes from. But um, I mean, it depends what you're doing. You know what I'm saying? So I always say, I believe everyone has a skill. You know, when I was, I was about 21 or 22 and I was with, she was my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, and we had two kids and I was working as an upholsterer, uh, a quality control inspector, actually. It was, it, was a, it was all right. You know, it was honest work, but it paid minimum wage. It wasn't very good. And this guy said to me, he said that I worked with my supervisor. He says, he says Michael, he said, what do you want to do for the rest of your life? Is this what you want to do? And I said, no. He said, well, you need to give it some thought because, you know, before you know it, 40 years will have passed just like it did for me. And you'll be an old man. And I thought, he's right. And I thought, what am I going to do with my life? And I was thinking and thinking and thinking. And I kept coming back to fighting. I had a, uh, did a lot of martial arts when I was a kid and I won nearly every tournament I entered. And, you know, and on top of that, I was a little rascal when I was a kid and I was always getting into street fights. So I knew I could handle myself. The point I'm making is, though, you, you got to be realistic in your goals and what you think it is, you know? And what I did, I came back to fight and I thought about that and I thought, okay, I'm going to become a professional fighter. And that's what I did. But what I'm saying is that everyone's good at something. If everyone searches with inside themselves, they'll find a talent. Everyone's got something. I don't know what it is. And when you find that out and you figure out what your true talent is, and then the confidence will come from that. So listen, I know I can do this. I know I'm good at this. So you can't have confidence. I don't know you guys. If you, I don't know if you can handle yourself or what, but I would assume if I just started training you to be an MMA fighter, you're not going to be very confident, but you seem like you're pretty good at podcasting. Do you know what I mean? So, you know, so it depends what it is, but and when you find your talent and you will find your niche and you, and you believe in yourself, then, you know, who knows where it might take you. But, you, but you've got to be realistic with yourself, of course. So, Michael, can I ask you the question then around your origins and in getting into sort of combat sports that I grew up in a, in a similar environment to you in terms of my dad was a boxing coach. 
And one of the sayings that they always used to say in that environment is uh, is that you can play football, you can play rugby, but you only fight. Mm. So it's an it's an industry or a game in which you don't really play at. It's an, it's one way you can get hurt. So what was it that attracted you to such a brutal world? Uh, t- to be honest, I, I was just kind of suited to it. If you know, I mean, growing up, my mum and dad in our house, it was you know we, we were around the fair bit of violence most days, to be honest. And then I started doing martial arts, and uh, I was good at it. I took to it like a duck to water, you know, and that, and that's why I never really focused on school too much. Um, and then, I, and then, as I say, as I got older, you know, I I, I I was kind of an idiot when I was young. I was very slow to mature, and I got into a fair few fights as well. And I'm ashamed to say that looking back now. You know, I am definitely ashamed of those years in my life, but I knew I could always handle myself. And uh, and and then when I was in my early twenties, as I say, you know, it was I, I wanted to give a better life to my family. You know, not, not not there's nothing wrong with working at factories and things like that, but I wanted more out of life. You know, and as I say, I did some soul searching to find what my skill was. After that conversation, I'm like, right, if I'm going to do something with my life, I've got to do it now. I can't sit around. And as stupid and as grandiose and as lofty as that goal was, that's what I came up with. So, and, and, and you're absolutely right. It isn't, uh, fighting isn't a sport that you pick up and put down. Fighting's a lifestyle. And I do see these days, it's getting more and more popular. And I see TikTokers and I'm seeing YouTubers and I'm seeing other celebrities trying to get involved. And, and it blows my mind, to be honest. You know, you're already good at something. Stick with that because fighting is very dangerous. And I feel like a lot of people underestimate it. Like I'm sitting here now, I've got two total knee replacements. I've got one eye, this eyeball pops out. I've got multiple replaced discs. I've had about 30 surgeries throughout my body of course vision in one eye it's it's not something that you play at it's not something that you pick up and put down but as as the UFC's exploded and got more and more popular certainly all over the world people look at that and they see it and they think oh I want to do that that's cool I can make money I can get on TV but there's only a few people that are cut from that cloth that should be in there if I'm honest so can I ask you then about like the first time that you really did get hurt whether this was in sparring in the early days or later on in your career, what was it that kept you going back beyond feeling that you didn't have an awful lot of choices, that that's what you wanted to do? What was it that that, that forced you to go and learn how to avoid getting hurt next time? Yeah, well, I mean, to be honest, I mean, it's not, it's not a particularly deep answer. You know, you, you get beat and you get back on the horse and you go again. You know, you don't give up. You don't give up at the first hurdle. Yeah, but that's where I think hurdle. most people would do. I think that, and this is where I'm intrigued to explore with you, that, yeah. that that seems an obvious answer to you of, well, you go back and do it again. But most people would be sickened and walk away at that moment. It just never even occurred to me. It never even occurred to me because I, I knew in my mind, I felt I was still good enough. I knew I could make tweaks and improve and things like that. So, yeah, but when when I got knocked out of UFC 100, when I got head kicked and then ultimately lost my eyeball, you know, you, you, you're not clear to fight, you know? So I lied. Not only was I risking vision in my eye, I was, I was lying to everybody. I was lying to doctors. I was lying to the UFC. I can say that now because I've been retired for a while, but at the time it was, it was probably the worst kept secret ever, but yeah, no giving up never even occurred to me because this is what I was always driven by my wife and my kids and trying to give them the best life. You know, because I, I've been there and I know how hard it is. And when 
you know, life is tough. Just to get by in life is tough. You know what I mean? We, we take it for granted that everyone has a roof over their heads and we've got food in the fridge and all the rest of it. But the world's a tough place. The world's, you know, and this is what I felt I could do. And I wasn't going to give up. I wasn't going to stop just because I lost one time. And, th- and that's about it And when it's all said and done. I'm interested to ask you about the, the tricky times and, and the difficult times after defeats when perhaps those around you maybe stopped believing. It clearly sounds like you never did. Um, we see a certain picture of a UFC fighter, right? We see you in the lights. We see you at the weigh-in. We see you on the ring walk. We see you in the ring. How difficult and dark did it get when it was difficult for you? Yeah, I mean, listen, when you're promoting a fight, you know, when you're interacting with the media, whatever, you know, you, you got to ooze bravado because that comes with it. People don't want to, you know, maybe it might be refreshing to hear the other side, but generally when you're coming up to a fight, you know, you're posturing, you know, because it's all psychological warfare as well. You've got to seem as confident as possible because if you seem a little nervous, whatever, you know, that, that's good for your opponent. That will help them grow in stature. And where I'm going to with this is a good example. And it actually comes back to UFC 100. So when I got knocked out and that was a terrible knockout, I actually went on to become the champion and I defended the belt in Manchester and I was rematching the same guy, you know, that was going to be my first title defense. And as I say, all week I was, I was, you know, I was full of it. I was confident. I was being my typical loud mouth self, if I'm honest, if anyone's watching this that knows me, they know what I'm talking about. But on the day of the fight, it's very different because you can lie to everybody. You can lie to the media. You can lie to the fans. You can do all that stuff. You lie to your coaches, lie to your wife. You know, you say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't lie to yourself. And I remember that day because of the, the US audience, the pay-per-view was like at four o'clock in the morning. So I was trying to sleep all day and I was trying to take a nap. And I couldn't, you know, because all I kept thinking is, the last time I stepped into an octagon with this guy, I got flatlined, I got knocked unconscious, and the whole world laughed at me for a few years, to be honest, you know, and 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 made me incredibly nervous, you know. And, and then when it came to time to go to the arena and I'm with my coaches and I'm being a little, you know, I was I, I, I was snappy. I was I, I wasn't a pleasant guy to be around. I was being a bit of a dick with everyone because I was so nervous, you know, and I didn't even realize it myself. And I was snappy and and we got in the locker room. And uh, again, I continued. I was kind of being a dick with all my teammates and whatnot because I was so nervous. And then I was on the floor and I was stretching and then I just started laughing. And then one of my coaches says, what are you laughing at? I said, oh. I said I'm sorry, guys. I said, I've been a total dickhead for the last couple of hours, haven't I? I said, I'm sorry. I said, I've been freaking out that I might lose, you know, my first title defense and in Manchester and everyone's come to see. I said, what's the worst that can happen? I thought, I get beat. So fucking what? I've lost before. It probably won't be the last. I said, you know, I apologize. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to do my best. You know, I've got to stop obsession over the fact if I lose, you know, and, and it was just a very, very healthy realization for me to have. And those, some of those nerves uh, dissipated, not all of them, but a lot of them did. And some of them came back when I almost got knocked out in the first round again, but <laughs> there you go. And how do you think you would have fought in that fight if you hadn't had that moment of realization, if those nerves and those anxieties had hung around you into the ring? Well, it's, it's, it's weird because in fighting and in a lot of sports, to be honest, and not only sports in everyday aspects of life, you know, that, that fear, that nervous energy that you have, that can be your best friend or your worst enemy, you know, certainly in fighting, adrenaline can be your best friend, you know, because obviously it heightens the senses and your reflexes and all the rest of it. But in any other life, you know, you've got to know what you're going into. And if, as I say, if you're nervous about something, it'll make you be prepared. It'll make you go the extra mile. Whatever, in regards of whatever it is, but it can also consume you as well. Certainly in the fight world, you know, w- w- when you're stepping in there against world class athletes, and 
if you get a little nervous and, and, and you're not confident in yourself, then, and again, confidence can be your best friend or your worst enemy. If you go into a fight scenario, overconfident, you might walk onto shots and things like that and go to sleep. But if you're also nervous, then, then you're not going to believe in yourself and you throw a punch, you close your eyes and you kind of look away and you hope, you know, so it's a very, very fine balancing act to find that correct uh, balance of nervous but confident at the same time, you know, and it's a constant tightrope that you're walking. And for me, I retired at 37 or 38 years old, and it was only towards the end of my career that I started figuring out the the mental side of things. And people think fighting is, and it is obviously a very physical sport, but the mind controls everything. You know, it is physical, but the mind is in charge, and that's what separates the truly elite fighters from. You know, the average guys, it's it's this because the physicality, you know, the, you know, some people are more athletically gifted or whatever, but it all comes down to this, their self-belief, their confidence and their work ethic. You know, how much are, are they willing to get off their ass and do what other people aren't willing to do? You know, we're not supermen, you know, far from it, but we're just uh, built differently mentally. You know, and as I say, for me, when I was younger, I used to try and wind myself up. I used to try and get angry. Like I go find a quiet room in the locker and I try and psych myself up and get angry. I think if I get angry, I'm a force to deal with. And that's okay against average guys. But when you start getting to the true elite, you can't fight like that. If you're in an angry, frantic state of mind, you're never the best version of yourself, regardless of what it is. Whatever you're doing in life, if you're mad, if you're angry, you're not being the best version of yourself. Simple as that. And certainly if you're in a fighting environment, you're in a martial arts world against the best martial artists on the planet, you can't be fighting on emotion. You've got to be cool, calm, and collected, and seeing everything and responding for the right reasons, not responding out of emotion. And that goes to everything, every, every walk of life. If you're responding out of emotion, you... you it's going to be a dickhead, aren't you? You know, you, you're not putting the best version of yourself forward. So some of the stuff that you're describing there, Michael, is what, say famously, customato, the idea of fear is like a fuel. It can either burn your house down or, or it can be used to heat you as a source. It's something that Mike Tyson described that customato was teaching to him from the age of 14 years old onwards. What sort of techniques did you learn then to control fear that that you came to yourself that listeners could uh, could adopt in their own life? Yeah, I mean, there wasn't any particular exercises. You know, I, I was very lucky that I had a, a great coach, you know, that helped me, my own customato, you could say, Jason Perillo. And because he knew when I, when I moved out here to the States in 2011, I moved around a few different gyms. And then when I started working with him, obviously he was a fantastic pad man. He was, he was a great physical coach, but he worked on this. And, I, and for us, a lot of my best training sessions, we'd of course go in the gym and we'd push it to the absolute limit and we'd do what we could and we'd spar and we'd hit pads and hit the bags, et cetera. But a lot of our best work was done when I was knackered and I was laid on the floor and I was stretching and he'd sit down next to me and we'd chat and we'd talk and we'd talk about the mental preparation. We'd talk about the fight. We'd talk about nerves, talk about my emotions going into it. You know, and I remember one day I was driving onto the car park because, you know, even though I'm sitting there, I'm saying, oh, you, you got to be cool, calm and collected. That doesn't mean I was always cool, calm and collected. You know what I mean? That's how I came to realize. And I remember, and you know, you're going in, you're getting ready for a fight. You got three or four guys that you're going to spar that day. And not every day is a good day in the gym. You know, sometimes you might get your ass kicked and sometimes you might lose your shit. 
you know what I mean? Start flipping out a little bit, you know what I mean? And who knows? Because there's pressure as well, especially if you've lost your last fight, you know, and then you're going into the gym and they've got no pressure. You're just paying them to come and kick your ass for the day, but you're going in and you've got four or five guys that are waiting to spar you. You've lost your last fight. The whole media's looking at you. The world's looking at you. You're saying you're going to win and you can't even win the sparring matches. You know what I mean? So maybe you lash out or whatever. You, I don't know, you have an argument with your coach and it all comes from nerves and in the emotions of the fight. And I remember I pulled onto the parking lot one day, car park sounded american there and uh he's waiting for me outside and he's smoking a cigarette and he walks over to me he says michael he says listen he says, we've got a bunch of killers in there today i says yeah yeah i know i'm sure he says uh but can you go in there and act like a world champion please i said well i, I i've always got a smart ass comment i said well i'm not a world champion he said i know he said well, i'm going to act like one i said you're better than all of them they would all kill to be in your position can you go in there and just control the room control the energy in the room you're the, you're, you're the man in there. They've all come here to, to help you. But if you're in there and you're out of control with your emotions and you're losing it and you're acting like this, it's not a professional environment and you look like an amateur, go in there, conduct yourself like a champion, okay? And by that, I mean everything. Be cool, be nice, be polite, but command respect, you know, control the room. Don't let your emotions get the better of you and make a fool out of yourself, you know? And it was little things like that that we'd work on, you know? And, and you know, I, I'm very thankful that he would do that because... I'm still an emotional wreck. <laughs> well, tell us how it went that day then. You, you know, listen, the, the thing is, when you're getting ready for a fight, you got to get pushed. You know, if you're yeah. going in there and, and you're dominating the room, I mean, yeah, that, that's that's what he wanted to do, but he meant, he meant mentally. But physically, if you're just dominating every training session, then you're not getting pushed. You need to get pushed. So that's why you have multiple sparring partners as well, you know, because as soon as one sparring partner starting to get tired, you bring the next one in, you know. So what I would do, I, if I was doing five rounds, We'd always try and have two partners per round because the rounds are five minute longs in mixed martial arts. So at two and a half minutes, you bring a fresh guy in, you know. So by round five, you're very tired and then you might start mouthing off. You might start getting a little emotional. You might start saying, what are you doing that for? My opponent's not going to do that. You keep kicking me with a certain kick. He never does that. And they're like, you know, you know, that's what I'm talking about. You start losing your temper and looking for reasons to, to get pissed off, you know. And it's all your frustration. It all comes back to nerves getting ready for the fight, you know. It's a minefield. So when you talk about controlling emotions, then, would you tell us about your rationale behind your famous trash-talking approach that you took to coming up against opponents? Yeah, well, I do cringe when I look back. But um, to be honest, I see, you know, with, they call it trash-talk, so, so we'll go with that, which is a very American know, term, yeah. which I detest. Yeah. Sledging. Trash-talk. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, talk a bit of shit, I'd say. But um, <laughs> and, and you might look... From the outside looking in, it might look a little juvenile. It might look a little, you know, thuggish, if you will. But it's also psychological warfare, you know. And, and some, some people have different approaches, and not everybody does it, you know what I mean? But for my mind, and this is, you know, I'm going to fight this person, you know. And, and we can sit here and we, we can say, we can say, oh, it's martial arts and it's respect and all the rest of it. At the end of the day, when I get into that cage with that person tomorrow night, their objective is to render me unconscious or to choke me out or to do as much physical harm to me that I say, oh, whoa, I can't take this anymore and I tap and whatever, right? So when it comes down to it, I'm going to do whatever I can to have an advantage. And as I said before, if you can install a little bit of doubt into that person, right, then you've already won the fight. They always say in the fight game, because remember, this controls everything. They always say in the fight game, you can win or lose a fight at the weigh-ins. You know, and you can read the body language. Now, of course, you can win. Uh, like, I remember one time I was chatting a bit of shit at the weigh-ins, and then the guy pushed me. 
And I just started laughing my head off because I knew right then and there I had his number because he'd broken mentally because he'd, he'd done that. And I'm like, that. I said, you're shitting your pants. You're shitting your pants, aren't you? And he went, boom, and he pushed me. And he, he was shitting his pants. He was nervous. And then and when he did that, that just, you know, I knew then I had confirmation. So that's why I was laughing. And then other times I might get in the face and I might finger point and I might start calling him every name under the sun or whatever. And what I'm trying to do there, and again, you know, you wouldn't want your grandma looking at that because she wouldn't be very happy about it. But as I say, the bigger objective to me is I'm going to fight this guy tomorrow and he's going to try and do harm to me. So if I can get in his face and have him thinking, oh, you see him, he's, he's a bit of a nutter. He's a bit of a force to deal with. He, he looked big. He was muscular. He was in great shape, whatever it is. And they think, oh, and I say, see me tomorrow night. It's on, buddy. All the talk leading up to this, it's fucking on tomorrow night, pal. I hope you're ready. I hope you're ready to back that all up. And some people that are mentally strong just laugh and they don't say whatever. But there is some it does work on. And you don't know until you get in there. So as I say, yes, uh, in terms of a human being at that moment in time, you're not putting your best foot forward. But in terms of trying to win the fight and win the psychological advantage, maybe you are. What was the best instance of that then that got you the best results? So you talk about the guy that pushed you. Have you got any other specific examples of where you felt like you'd won the fight in, that, uh, in, in a moment like that? Or feared that you hadn't? Yeah, well, there, there was definitely a few that I hadn't. I mean, I don't want to offend people here, but uh, <laughs> when I lost my eye, the guy Vito Belfort, he's very religious. You'll know about it straight away as soon as you meet him. And uh, uh, and, and so for, and he also had a tendency to take performance-enhancing drugs. I mean, if you saw uh, him at the weigh-in, he was, he was jacked beyond belief. But as I say, that mental belief, looking back now, when I see those uh, videos and stuff from the weigh-ins, I think it's clearly obvious this man's on all the steroids. Do you know what I mean? But I, that never occurred to me at the time because in my mind I'm so confident and I believe in myself I'm going to win this fight that I didn't even see that and then to make matters worse I uh, I call him over I say hey Vito come here come here and he leans in and I say there is no Jesus you know now maybe there is because the next day I got kicked in the head uh, <laughs> TKO'd and then I ended up losing uh, you know detaching my retina so there's one that definitely backfired <laughs> for you <laughs> so that one there about I mean the example you mentioned there about a guy that's that is taking performance enhancing drugs is a really fascinating topic that how did you cope knowing that you were going up against guys that were cheating, that were using illegal advantages? What did you do mentally to, uh, to cope with that? Yeah. I'm, I mean, I was very naive. I think back then, because the reality is now when people know now that pretty much most people were, but now they have the, you saw the United States anti-doping association when you're training for a fight, they'll show randomly you know four or five times the day of the fight they, they show up at your house at six o'clock in the morning they take your urine they take the blood and all the rest of it so that you know it's pretty much been eradicated now uh but you know there's there's always new methods i guess you know and people in professional sports will always try and find a way but for the most part it's been eradicated but back in the early days before usada was around yeah there was definitely it was it was it was a big thing it was a big problem uh, but, but I never touched a performance enhancing drug in my life. And I always prided myself on that because, you know, I don't know how you can go into a sport like this and win and then look at yourself in the mirror and take credit for that mentally because you cheated. And I think it's absolutely disgusting, to be honest. It's one, th it's bad enough to cheat in sports as it is, but, you know, we're not trying to put a ball in the back of the net here. We're trying to do damage, you know, so. Sure, but, go on. but you're still going up against it, aren't yeah. you? However, they've squared it morally with themselves. There's, you're still at a huge disadvantage. Yeah, no, absolutely I was. But uh, I guess, call it naivety, call it arrogance, 
you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure what, what I'd call it, but back then I was like, yeah, whatever. You know, like there was a phase there that they, they were allowed to have testosterone replacement therapy. If they went to a doctor and the doctor said, yeah, you got low testosterone, you know, but any, so all of a sudden everyone was on TRT. That's what they call it. Everyone was on TRT and they're like, oh no, no, I've got to take this. I have a condition. If I don't take this, uh, if I come off it, I'll die. And well, eventually they figured out that this was crazy because then everyone was on test TRT. So they banned it. And then, Five years later, these same fighters are still fighting. So it was absolute nonsense. But still, as I say, in my mind, it prob probably was a little bit of naivety, probably was a little bit of arrogance, maybe a little stupidity. But I always ask, whatever, whatever. That, that, that's their mental weakness. They feel that they need that to make themselves better, that they need that to be able to compete. Well, I don't. I don't need that. Because most of those people, most of those people are bullies. And what I mean by that, in, in, in the fight world, the truly great fighters, you've got to be a good hammer and you've got to be a good nail. Right. And most of those guys that take steroids, they're great when they go out there and they're being the hammer. Right. But in the fight world, you got to be able to take a kick in. You we got to be able to get your ass kicked for a round and then go back and you corner them and wipe you down and you brush it off and say, okay, all right, that's in the rear view mirror. Let's go again. Most of those guys like that, when they get an, their ass kicked, they fold and they crumble and they look for a way out. That's what I mean. They're bullies. You know what I'm saying? So they, they, they might look good and they might have the power and they might be able to dish out and ass kicking. But when it starts coming back the other way, they fold, you know, and I'd rather have the mental strength than the physical bicep strength any day of the week. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A few times then, Michael, you've spoken about this idea of um, like being naive or a couple of times that you've almost got to lie to yourself and to others. How do you avoid falling into the trap of being deluded because obviously it's a dangerous game you're playing but who tells you the truth who sort of is like who did you listen to that would say to you you, you know you need to protect you, you need to be protected from yourself yeah yeah no that, that's a great question it's a great question i'm not sure i've got an answer for you because certainly in my game and i know that it's not all fighters that are listening to this but in the fight game that is a thing that is delusional and fighters certainly are their own worst enemies at times you know there's, there's often times you see fighters continue i mean look at evander holyfield he was back in the ring a couple of weeks ago he had no business being there you know i i always think i had a good team around me you know uh i had my wife and my coach and my coach jason he's a real one yeah he ain't gonna lie to you he ain't gonna sugarcoat it and he's not there to, see, this is the thing as well. A famous fighter, they attract all these Klingons, all these people, these wannabes, you know, and they're making money and they, you know, maybe they're a little bit famous or whatever. And these 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 people that are in the periphery, you know, they 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 get their little bit of shine as well. You know what I mean? So they're not they're not being honest with the guy either because they want to still be involved. They want to make the money and they want to be holding the pads. They want to be on camera. They, you know what I'm saying? They want to be on TV. They want to be in the corner. So they're all full of shit. A lot of people, but you got to know, you, you know. Fortunately, I always had very real people around me that weren't lying to me. Uh, maybe I was lying to myself, you know, because my doctors, I remember my, my doctor, uh, I saw this Indian doctor in England uh, one day. I, I was over doing some work for BT Sport and I'd said I could fight. And anyway, long story short, I cheated on the test uh, about my one eye. 
and 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 doctor was he was he was so concerned. He said, "Right, oh, you've passed the test." He didn't know I cheated. He said, "You've passed the test on on that." He said, "But you shouldn't do this if 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 you uh, you know damage your other eye, you're gonna go blind." You know, and I'm like, mm, "Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, you're right, doctor. You're right. I'll give it some thought. I'll give it some thought." I had no intention of giving it any thought, you know. And I walked out of there, and 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 I just completely dismissed all of his advice. And then, of course, I started having problems with my good eye. And then when that happened, I was like, oh my God, I don't believe this. And I hated myself. And I definitely went through some self-loathing. I'm like, every, they bloody warned me. But I knew better. Every med, every eye professional that I spoke to, they all warned me. They said I was stupid. But I knew better, didn't I? I couldn't listen to the doctors that have been to university, that have done this their entire life. Oh no, me, stupid bloody asshole from Clitheroe. I knew better. I didn't listen to them. But again, if I had have listened to them, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. And I wouldn't have that Hall of Fame trophy behind me there. And I wouldn't have financial security. And I, I and 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 who 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 bloody knows? Do you know what I mean? It's a good point. I'm interested in whether you have an answer to this then about people who you did accept into your inner circle and then realized they weren't who you thought they were. How did you deal with them? Oh, I tell you what, I I, I suffered with that early in my career. You know, I, I got around a team of people that were that were terrible for me. Uh and and as I say, when I look back in the early years. Uh, some of my behavior was very regrettable, uh, and that's I was I was around a certain team of people that were not good for me. And what, in what not, way were they not good? Well, 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 they just I mean they, they, they were they were they were basically thugs. You know what I mean? So they would encourage the, the loutish behavior. You see it all the time in the fight game. You see it all the time. Uh, and it, you know, it, after a while, I realized it, and you know, I, I made a separation. But it's like I mean, that's very one specific example but you do see it in the it's, it's it's as old as days people start getting a little bit of success and people come out the woodwork in fact i remember when i won the ultimate fighter that when you win the ultimate fighter you win a contract in the ufc but for some reason there was this there was this idea that you got given a million dollars and when i won uh uh the uh, the ultimate fighter i'm back in clitheroe right and i'm still flat broke at that time but here's an example all of a sudden i get a call randomly i don't know how he got my number some financial uh, uh investor some business strategic guy from down in london and he says mike mike i know you've got a couple into some money recently i'm like no 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 i haven't and i i kept trying to tell him and, and he thought i was lying to him he said i'm gonna come up i'm gonna drive i'm gonna come and see you i said i'll help you invest that money for you i said there, there is no money i said i've got a fire and he wouldn't believe it and he drove up from london i was at a maxwell's restaurant in clitheroe and we're sitting down we're having a coffee and he thought i was he thought he could rip me off and you know take my money and invest it he, i wouldn't have seen a penny let's be honest he would have he, he was he was a shark but he came up and it bit him in the ass. I said, mate, I told you, there's no money. He said, okay, walk me through the contract. And I went there and he's like, so you haven't just been given a million dollars? I'm like, no, <laughs> I told you that multiple times. And he, oh, you should have seen his face. Finished his coffee, never saw him again, never heard from him again. And as I say, he didn't come up there with uh, good intentions. He was going to help me invest my money. He wanted to swindle that from me. Do you know what I mean? But the million dollars didn't exist. So... How did you avoid then not becoming cynical? Because that must have been incredibly bruising and hurtful for you to have grown up with these people, thought they were friends, been ripped off by them. How did you not become cynical to allow others that did have your better interests into your inner circle? Yeah, well, there's a lot of good people in the world, isn't there? You know, simple as that. I, I meet people and I'm inspired every day, you know, uh, but by their kindness and their greatness. There's, there's good and bad wherever you go. 
you know, so you can't tar everybody with that same brush, you know, and for the most part, I'll forgive people as well. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Listen, there, there is, you can't be sitting, you can't go through your life like that. You know, you cannot always, uh, see the worst in people. I'm very much an optimist and my wife's a pessimist. She, we're, we're the exact opposite. You know, I, I, I think of something and I think it's going to go to the moon. I'm like, Oh, we've got an idea. And she's like, Michael, I'm like, why are you talking like that? Do you know what I mean? I truly believe I, and maybe I get a little overexcited about anything that I do, but I, and I do, and I start thinking, Oh, this is going to be good. Whatever it is, like some business idea or whatever. And she's the flat is complete opposite. So yeah, I, I try and see the best in people. You know, I try and give them a fair crack of the whip, even though I've had my fingers burnt a few times. But then let me ask it in a different way then, Mike, because I'm thinking about, say, young people listening to this podcast that might be recognising that the people in their world aren't, haven't got their best interests at heart or aren't going to help them get to their own dreams and ambitions. But with pack animals by our nature, it's very difficult to break away from those groups. So what advice would you give to any young people listening to this about how they should choose their inner circle and how they go about um, breaking away from circles that are not as healthy? Yeah, I mean, I mean that's that, that's a tough question to answer. And I wish I had the perfect answer because I'm sure every situation is a different one. But um, I mean, you, you've just got to be honest. Regardless, I mean, whatever situation it is, you know, if you look around and you see, be honest with yourself if you want to be a part of this. I don't know what you're referring to, but there's probably many, many different examples. You know, but any young men right now, if they you know look around to take a look, to try and try and step back from it all and and look at what you're doing and think, is this who I want to be? Is this what I want to be a part of? I mean, like I remember, like listen, as I said at the start, when I was younger, I was going out and I was getting into scraps and I was hanging around with a bunch of lads. We, we had a good laugh and whatnot, but we were just partying all the time, and we, we you know, and I was like, we were partying and we were getting in scraps and I was getting arrested and things like that and i thought to myself is this what i want is this what i want out of life jesus christ is this it you know what i mean but a bit of a landmark idiot uptown you know what i mean is that what i want out of life and, and i broke away from all, all my mates and they're good lads don't get me wrong they're not bad people but they weren't good for me you know what i mean and, and I, I i live in america now and I, I had to get away from those kind of uh influences you know what i mean because i was realizing i was i was going down the wrong path you know, and you, you got to be honest with yourself. Take a look around, see what you're up to, you know, regardless of what it is. And now you're living in the States, as you've said, with your wife and your children. I'm very interested to know how this amazing story of growing up in the UK, all the setbacks, finally conquering the world, having an amazing career, dealing with all kinds of different folk along the way. How has that informed the way you parent your kids? I, I was I was smirking there because I conquered the world. I was like, wow, thank you very much. Very not sure I feel like that. Uh, how does it? <laughs> interesting. Oh, tough. You guys ask hard questions. I don't know if it has. I don't know if it has. I'm. I, you yeah, know, come I've on. always. You been... are not parenting your kids as the Michael who was getting into scraps on the no streets way. of Northern England. No, no, you're parenting no, 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 your no, no, kids no. as the man who's seen everything that he's gone through. So your kids have troubles, issues, whatever it yeah. is. Surely you parent them with the hindsight of everything that you've learned along the way. Oh, absolutely. I do. And, you know, and I try and tell them, you know, I try and, you know, whatever little bit of wisdom I've gained on this planet, you know, I try and bestow that upon them, you know, and I, I tell them to dream big, you know, I definitely, you know, obviously all the normal mundane day-to-day -day stuff, but I tell, I tell my children to dream big, you know what I mean? As I say, everyone's got a skill, you're good at something, you know, and, and go for it, w w whatever it is, you know. How are you when they, when they quit at stuff? 
I don't know if I've ever really experienced that. I mean, I'm, I mean, all right. I mean, my, my daughter quit ballet, you know, but it's like, what am I going to say to that? You know, she, she wasn't enjoying it. <laughs> I said, you regret that one day. And she did regret it. I'm a happy go lucky dad. You know what I mean? I'm not really the disciplinary authoritarian type, but uh, I'm very lucky though. My kids are great. I'm very, I'm of course I'm a doting father, but my kids are very easy. They're like their mother. Thank God. Do you know what I mean? They are <laughs> nothing like me. They've got a very heavy influence from the mother. They're very polite. They're very nice. So uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm hardly ever here. I, I'm always traveling somewhere or other. So I can't take credit for that either. We've reached the point of our interview where we uh, run through quick fire questions. Let's go. Your three non-negotiable behaviours that you and the people around you have to buy into to be part of your world. But yeah, I mean, trust obviously is a big one, you know. Uh, three non-negotiable behaviours. I mean, I have a small circle. I don't really see anyone. I don't really have any friends. Everyone thinks I'm out here living this Hollywood lifestyle. It's just me, my wife and kids. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but 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 uh, but maybe that's why I have a small circle because uh, yeah, a lot a lot of people just can't be doing with them. Do you know what I mean? They're, they're, uh, but uh, I don't think I've got an answer for you on that one. That's uh, three non-negotiable terms. I mean, everyone's different. Everybody's different, and I take everyone as they come. You know, but uh, and I, and I figure it out pretty soon or not whether they're a dickhead. If they're a dickhead, they can they can go, and if they're not, they can stay. <laughs> How was that for you? Brilliant. How important is legacy to you? I mean, to be honest, it's not really something that that that, that motivated me at the time. You know, it, people now say, "Oh, you know, you got a great legacy in the sport and things like that," and and that's really beautiful to hear. You know, but at, at the time when I was competing and I was working towards what what, what I was, um, it was always just I was living in the moment. I was always about the here and now. I wasn't thinking about the future, and I certainly wasn't thinking about leaving a legacy. But it is important to me now because you know, I guess my legacy. I was always a clean fighter. I became a champion. I was. I get. I, I have a lot of nice things that I said about me in terms of being a pioneer for British MMA and stuff, but I wasn't. There was people before me. There really was. Yeah, okay, I was the first British champion, and that's nice, but there'll be another one. You know, it's only a matter of time before one comes, and I can't wait to see it. But as I say, how important is legacy? It's great in hindsight, but at the time, it, I, I think if you're thinking about your legacy at that moment in time, then uh, you're probably not going to leave much of a legacy. You shouldn't be fueled by that at that moment in time. You should be chasing. You should be trying to live your dream. You should be trying to go for it. You shouldn't be trying to build a legacy. Yeah, if that comes, that's for other people to talk about. At that moment in time, when, when you're trying to achieve whatever it is, if you're thinking about the legacy that you're going to leave in the world, you know, then, then you're probably not going to achieve what you're looking to do. And finally, Michael, what's your one golden rule for our listeners to live a high-performance life? Well... <sighs> You know, it, whatever you do in life, you're going to start at the bottom. Simple as that. So as I said, you know, I believe everyone does have a skill, you know, but you've got to be realistic with yourself. Uh, you know, it's like someone listening to this, you know, they, they might want to be an astronaut. Well, that's probably not realistic, is it? You know, because you're probably not very good at math. You got to be—I don't know much about what it takes to be an astronaut, but I think one of the prerequisites you got to be pretty good at math to start. So you got to be honest with yourself, and then when you figure out what that's what that talent is, that doesn't mean that uh, all of a sudden you're going to be a success. Now it's time to start working towards it. Maybe you got to finesse that skill. Maybe you got to go to college. You got to go to uni. You got to do all that, and then you got to come out, and it might be a long, long, long road. You know, like, like, like for me, when I decided I wanted to be a fighter and I started putting the work in and then I had my first professional fight, because I remember when I got off, when I was told about this kind of path that I could take and I said, is that not dangerous? 
And he said, well, well, I'll never put you in a life-changing fight unless it's a life-changing check. My first professional fight, I got paid nothing, zero. Do you know what I mean? But the ball was rolling, you know, and you start working towards it and you claw and you scratch your way up. You know, and I remember at the time I used to sleep in my car. I was training in Nottingham and my wife would call me up and she'd be, she'd be in tears. We had no money. We, we couldn't pay the bills. The bills were piling up. We couldn't pay the mortgage and all that type of stuff. And I'm sleeping in my car chasing this bloody pipe dream of being a professional MMA fighter. You know, and I'm fighting about the tears. And I'm saying, babe, it's going to change. It's going to change. The point I'm making is it's never easy. And if you're chasing your dreams and you're chasing your goals, be prepared that uh, there's going to be dark days. There's going to be tough times, but it's going to make it all worth it in the long run. You know, if it's worth having, it's never easy achieving it. Very good. Listen, Michael, thank you so much for giving up some time to chat to us early in the morning after only one coffee for the uh, High Performance Podcast. We do appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, guys. Damien. Jake. I really wanted to hear from Michael, like the actual specifics of how he got to the to the top of the UFC game and conquered the world. I think the real value I took from it was the bit around his story of choosing your pack wisely, you know, from the start that he was obviously a product of his environment of going down the wrong pathway in terms of getting himself into trouble, whether it was through fighting or sort of criminal activities and having the strength of mind to detach yourself from that and go after your own goals. I think that was a really powerful and valuable lesson for anyone listening to this. And I also think, you know, we mustn't get too caught up in having conversations and wanting amazing sort of golden nuggets of life-affirming advice from people. Like, all we can do is open the opportunity up and lay it bare. And that is, you know, I think he was being totally honest with us and that's how he feels. You know, fighting was something that kind of maybe felt quite natural. I enjoyed the conversations with him about him having to go into the sparring room and be the world champion in the room. And he obviously had to learn that. And there was some good, interesting stuff around that. But, you know, all we can do is have these conversations really and then allow people at home to to take from them what they will rather than us being sort of too keen to control the narrative if you know what I mean yeah I think that's a really important point for us to remember Jake that 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 we're not here to put words in people's mouths you know we're not here to tell people what they were thinking in retrospect I think if people are going to be honest with us and I think absolutely Michael was I think we have to let them tell their story and sometimes that makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable or challenges our thinking but but I think that's valuable for us as well as for anyone listening yeah and look there's no doubt about it um he got to the absolute top of the world in his chosen sport and you can tell by the energy he brought to the conversation with us that he continues to be someone that just wants to drive and he wants to achieve more and I don't think his journey or his story is over yet is it no I think that kind of relentless willingness to push the boundaries is something that will take him into even more interesting territories uh, as he goes forward Well, Damien, I don't know about you, but um, you can probably hear from this conversation, my voice is struggling. How's yours? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, wrecked. <laughs> you always sound like you smoke about 40 a day. <laughs> if you're wondering why we're struggling slightly with our voices, we did the recording of the audiobook for High Performance, Lessons from the Best on Becoming Your Best. Um, I thought, yeah, read a, read a book in a day and a half. What, what's the problem? No, no, I can hardly talk. I can't shout at the kids. <laughs> I know. I've really enjoyed it, though, haven't you? Like going back over the book and reading it in its in its entirety has been a really enjoyable experience, reminding us of some of the amazing people we've had the we've been blessed to meet. The key for me, though, is always like, I didn't want I didn't want this book to be like oh, 
you're just telling us about the conversations you had with the people you've met. You know, I really, really wanted it to be tangible lessons, exercises, things that people can look at, understand how it can impact their own lives and go off and do it. And I think I've sort of tried to read the book because they've asked us, you know, to read it a few times just to make sure we're happy with it. But when you read it over, like when you get a chance over the, a month or two, you you think it's a good book. When you read it in 24, 48 hours and you re- you read about one lesson on the back of another one five minutes before, you realise, like, this really is a book that is going to change people's lives if they buy it, read it, or listen to it, and then act upon it, you know? Yeah. Like, the metaphor I have in my head is it's like the Russian dolls where it starts from the inside out. So we start with with mindset, first of all, then we go on to behaviours, and then we look at the ripple effects on how that can apply to a team. So hopefully people regardless of where they're reading it from what position they're in or how they want to apply it will find something useful whether it's individually or collectively as a team i think there's something in there for uh, for everybody yeah there was some great you know as i was going through it with you and i know we've done it together but i was still learning and reminding myself of lessons that i've learned that i've forgotten about you know i remember joe malone coming on the podcast and saying that in life lessons are like sand you try and hold it and it slowly slip, slips through your fingers. And I kind of feel like that with this book, you know, that we, we've written these things down, tried our best to understand them, and then even we've forgotten them. And if we're running the podcast, writing the book, recording the audio book, and we're forgetting them, it's a reminder, you know, how often as human beings we have to keep on drilling this stuff back in ourselves, you know? Yeah, and, you know, we've used the phrase previously when we spoke about the book, we don't want this just to be shelf development where people read it and then stick it on the bookshelf. This is something that we want it to be a manual, like a user's guide, where people read it, give things a go, come back to it, reference it, and see it as a, as, as an accompaniment to the life. That, to me, would give me an, an awful lot of satisfaction, as I know it would for you. Agreed, man. Self-help, not shelf-help. Let's just talk very quickly about the High Performance Circle. Can I just say thanks, by the way, to the thousands and thousands of people who've become members of the High Performance Circle already. If you're not sure what it is, it's our members club just go to the high performance um click the link you'll get an invite um and then you've suddenly got access to loads of brilliant content from high performance including keynote speeches little high performance boosts um and exclusive podcast interviews as well and the podcast that we've uploaded this month damien the exclusive podcast is one of the best and if people go there now they can hear it weeks before it comes out here on high performance yeah, it's with the incredible John McAvoy. It's, this is a guy that's lived 10 lifetimes in his own so far. He um, grew up, I think he's a great example of that we're all products of our environment. You know, he grew up in a in a family uh, seen as almost like underworld royalty um, and went down that route of uh, criminality, dealt with the consequences and then put himself in an environment where he could be an elite athlete and he's now um, an incredible um, Ironman uh, triathlon athlete it's his story is just so rich so rich in so many lessons that not only has he lived that life he's also reflected on it and the lessons that he shared with us were mind-blowing and as we talk about in the interview I honestly had this opinion Damien that you get sort of good and bad people and he was a bad person and he was so clear that that's too simplistic you know you can be a good person born into bad situations and equally, you can be a bad person and you can have your life turned around. And he was very much, well, he says he's the same guy that was Robin Banks. He's the same guy now who was the most wanted man in Britain. He's the same guy now that was on the high dependency unit at Belmarsh. You know, he was 
right there with the worst of the worst. And now he's got to where he's got to, not by becoming a different person, but by allowing different influences in his life. And I suppose in many ways, it kind of sums up what we try and do with this podcast is like, we're just trying to give people a different influence in their lives and hope it helps. That's a brilliant summary of it. Yeah, I think that the, um, the, 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 so there's a management guru from the 1950s and 60s called Peter Senger that used to say that a bad system will always be a good person. So if you put a good person in a bad system, eventually you get ground down by it. And I think John's a great example of that. But then equally, when he's been put in a good system, he's thrived. So we had Terry Williamson, who was a bit of a mentor to him that he met when he like came out of prison, came along with John when we met him. And that's a really good example of people that are with him for the right reasons, that care for him as a person and want to see him flourish. I think anybody that makes the time to listen to it will get an awful lot out of it. I'm confident of that. Brilliant. Absolutely right. Um, and there's loads on there as well. We've already uploaded loads of boosts, loads of keynote speeches, loads of podcasts. It's a really rich place. If you go there, you will find so much stuff. Um, and we update it every month, this month, as well as the John McAvoy podcast. You'll hear from Ben Williams. He was a former Royal Marine commando. He's now a motivational speaker. And being in the Royal Marines was a roller coaster journey for him. Incredible highs and the shocking lows of war. He was injured in an IED blast in Afghanistan, returned to the UK, um, was treated for PTSD, still is to this day. And when his demons were brought under control, he got the opportunity to join the Commando Training Centre in Limpston. And as a recruit instructor, he then entered the world of coaching and helping others. And that's now what he spends his time doing. He joined us. And thank you so much, Ben, for coming on the High Performance Circle. And as well as that, from a very different spectrum, I guess you'd say, um, Sir Michael Barber. British educationist, founder and chairman of Delivery Associates. They're a global firm working with governments and other public social impact organisations. Um, and he is a global expert on large-scale system change and a leading authority on education as well. And he came and joined us. And again, it's a conversation you just need to hear. It's a, it's amazing stuff from Michael. Um, so thank you to Michael. Thank you to Ben. Uh, thank you to John and everyone else who's given us really deep, rich content for the High Performance Circle. And if you want more from High Performance, then become a member of the circle it's quick simple very easy just go to the high performance podcast.com click on the circle and um, get on with it damien thanks so much for your time man thanks mate and happy birthday to you as well yes we are recording this on the day i turn 43 and i always think of my granddad i was born on his 50th birthday so he'd be 93 today and that is kind of scary because he was 50 the day i was born and i'm now 43 so uh yeah that creates mild panic um top man i've got lots to get on with have a good day mate thanks mate you too cheers thanks as always to finn uh, to will to eve to hannah to the whole high performance team um really appreciate you giving up your time to come and spend time with us i really hope it's helpful and that you've learned once again from the guest who has joined us on today's high performance podcast don't forget you can find us on youtube you can find us on instagram you can join the high performance circle it's all there for you at the high performance podcast.com and if you want to, now you've finished listening to this episode, hit the link in the description and you can also order our new book. And finally, thanks as well to Give Me Sport for being a partner of the High Performance Podcast. And if you go to givemesport.com forward slash podcasts, you can actually see loads of really interesting stories and takeaways that they've got from the High Performance Podcast over the past few series. Uh, so go there and check it out. Givemesport.com forward slash podcasts thanks very much for listening and we'll see you for plenty more very soon hopefully when both our voices have recovered see ya
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 